Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. You don't own me. I'm not just one of your many toys. You don't own me. Don't say I can't go with other I'm your host, Stella, and this is Backworld to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 126 for October MMXVI. Backworld to Oracle is brought to you by Required Reading, a new podcast coming from Tom Panarese and myself. Adolescents this generation have no respect and are a far cry from my sweet Jane Eyre and her friend Helen Burns. Why, just this afternoon I was Stella. across and, and you know what? Men too. Well, uh, 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 Stella. Men like the tragic Mr. Rochester and teachers, pa, they're all like the villainous Mr. Brocklehurst. Hey, Stella! Uh, yes, Thomas? As much as I enjoy um, indulging your insanity, we have a promo to record. Oh dear, and what might that be? That is you and I telling everyone that we have a brand new podcast out there. It's called Required Reading with Tom and Stella. Once a month, we will take a look at a single work of literature, discuss it, analyze it, and determine if it's worth its place in the canon. Oh dear, that sounds delightful. Oh, I'm sure it will be. And you can find us on the Two True Freaks Network, which is at twotruefreaks.com. Oh yes, required reading with with Tom and... Why is it Tom and Stella? Why can't it be Stella and Tom? It rolls off the tongue better? Okay. Well, that was easy. So, required reading with Tom and Stella at twotruefreaks.com. Thanks for contributing to the promo there. You did a great job. Oh, you are so welcome. 
The first episode of Required Reading drops November 15th, and you can look for future episodes the second Tuesday of every month. Backroll the Oracle is brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Backworld the Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe family of podcasts. Hashtag TBU family. Help TBU keep the lights on. Please donate to help Dustin with rising server fees. Your support means your favorite shows will continue airing. We are currently at 70%. Go to thebatmanuniverse.net to learn more and donate today. I donated. Have you? Well, my next guest helped pave the way for more women working in the comics business and has continued to have an impact on the way female characters are portrayed in comics. So I'm very pleased and honored to welcome Barbara Randall Kiesel to the show. Uh, you are a prolific person, and I think it's been you've been the one person, the name that I've kept coming back to. And I apologize for it being so long because you really needed to be on here sooner than, than now. So I do apologize for that. I always say I'm one of the many people, people I keep saying, oh, yeah, that's right, you're in comics yeah. too. So it happens. Absolutely. Well, I want to first get uh, an idea of how you got into writing and your history with writing, not only with comics, but just the general medium. Well, in terms of writing, I was the kid who always had paper near me and was always writing some kind of story or telling some kind of story. And that was sort of early on. I know Little Women mm. affected me quite a bit. I was going to be an author. I was going to grow up, probably live in penury. Uh, and then as I got older, I ended up, because I was in the honors classes, I got dragged into the, the theater department at Walnut High School by a teacher who needed to fill an honors class. And I just loved it. And I started scripting for theater-wise. So I stopped. I'm like the only writer I know who doesn't have a huge amount of prose work because I switched to script uh, script form very, very early on. And I loved mythology. I loved superheroes. Now, I grew up with comic books, but I grew up with some that I'd found at used bookstores. I didn't have a shop where I could get them regularly. So I'd pick them up when we were at, like on road trips and all that. But I didn't have a regular monthly relationship with comic books. I had them as one of the multiple things I read. And then coming out to California, when I was going to Cal Poly Pomona, getting a theater degree, I worked at the library in Pomona. And I was early for my shift one day. And whenever I'm early somewhere, I take off and start walking and check every road nearby. There's an open air antique mall in Pomona that has, uh, at the time, now it's pretty much all in osteopathic college. But at the time, there were three blocks that were uh, shut off to cars. So you know, the road was open to pedestrians. So I'm walking down the street, sort of minding my own business, and I had a guy come running up behind me, put his arm around me. So I still remember his fingers in my shoulder. And he just very happily told me that, hey, I have got the car in the parking lot. We're going to go up to the mountains. I've been looking forward to this for so long, blah, blah, blah. And I realized I was in danger. And after sort of nodding and smiling and looking for a way out, I noticed that one of the stores was physically open because a lot of them were still closed. So I rocketed myself Somewhere, I think I sort of launched myself, elbowed a breastbone off him, and then took running, took off running in the store. Ended up in this big, giant used bookstore. It's called Pfeiffer's Books Antiques, with Carl and Francis Pfeiffer standing in the middle, looking startled because I had just raced in. And I'm saying, I'm not here, and you don't see me as I disappear into the stacks. 
And the guy comes in behind me like half a minute later and says to them, have you seen my girlfriend? And they go, oh, yeah, she went out the other door into the parking lot. And they then followed him and locked it. And this is the sort of situation where today we'd have an Amber Alert in, in tenants. But at the time, this was 1980. So they said, do you want us to call the police? And I said, no, I can't even really dis- – I wasn't – he was you know, beside and behind me. I could describe his voice but not him. He, I know I was in danger, and I can't repeat any words that are in over. At no point did he show me a word. So I know I just dodged a bullet there metaphorically, but I, it's going to look ridiculous on paper. A- again, 1980, now 79, somewhere in there. And I said, no, I have one of our books behind you, please. So I became a regular customer at Pfeiffer's buying comic books. And I would come in and buy runs of series because they had an extensive back issue collection, which I purchased much of. <laughs> uh, but I would come in complaining. I'd read like a year or two at once. And because I'm there at school doing character scene and beat analysis mm-hmm. daily and then applying some of that same analytical reasoning to comic books, I'm looking at things at, going, OK, I see where this story failed and they abandoned it. I see where they lost the artist and that changed the tone of the story here. I see how this writer is strong enough that various different artists don't mean any difference. There's a consistency to the work. So I sort of had a, a quick course in comic book analysis because when you read a stack of comics all at once, when you read them monthly, you have an emotional relationship with the story. You're, you're kept on pause. It's designed, Scheherazade-style storytelling designed to keep you going. When you get them a big chunk all at once, which is kind of the downside of the trade paperback now, you don't have the suspense of waiting. So you don't have a chance to mentally extrapolate and decide where you think the story might be going. It's just laid out for you. But that means also impressed in, in a way you can go back and see it all at once. So many of the famous comics of the field, people don't understand the impact of them because they're getting it all at once and backwards. They already know the punchline, and then they're going back and watching the story. But some of the things that were coming out there in the the 80s were just very – well, the 60s, 70s, and 80s because I was getting a lot at once are very vivid storytelling, very powerful stuff. So anyway, uh, Carl and Francis got used to seeing me regularly. I got to know – stores regulars and and i would come in and do what every comic fan ever does which is complain bitterly about how stupid they are <laughs> so it frustrated the hell out of me i loved what marvin george were doing on the teen titans i hated a lot of what was being done in the field at the time and there was one issue that sort of got up my ire because it features my my least favorite and my apologies by the way to all the people involved in this comic because i should go back and figure out which one it was and i haven't but it had it was an issue of de- either batman or detective comics with a woman in a mask on the cover and you have the whole storyline of the woman in the mask goes around attacking men because she's been disfigured and at the end of the story the mask comes off and you discover she has a teeny tiny little scar because we have nothing but our beauty to offer we got nothing else I hate that story. I hate the moral of that story. I hate the message of that story. I hate all the sexy, stupid Batgirl in tights getting a run oh, crap. Yeah. I wanted to be the hero. I wanted to be the effective hero, and there weren't any strong female characters. Now, I, I'm going to put Wonder Woman off to the side because she had her TV show at the side and all that, but she was from – my recollection at the time, even though she's appeared on Ms. Magazine and comes across as a feminist icon, I thought she was characters ever. Because from, again, my very literal kid standpoint, if you're going to go fight crime, I'm going to do it in armor. I'm not going to do it in a bikini. Mm-hmm. But that's my choice. And I've since then sort of, you know, I, I've gained a much greater appreciation for Wonder Woman on the whole. But anyway, there I have the kind of story that makes there me cranky. You, yeah. So 
back of that issue is a letter column with a letter from a fan saying, Dear DC, how come your male characters are really kind of complicated and full, fully fleshed and your female characters are kind of uh, um, stereotypes and cliches? Maybe you should hire some women writers and artists. Dick Giordano's unfortunate editorial reply was, no, I don't think that's it. What do you think? And so he got a 10-page diatribe from me that I wish I had a copy of. It's disappeared into mm. the ether. Um, not that it never occurred to me to keep a copy. Uh, where I basically said, dear Mr. Giordano, yes, I think it does make a difference. I think perhaps some of your writers and artists should spend time actually perhaps speaking to a woman or observing one. Because I don't think you have to sacrifice the beauty of the image to draw it with enough strength to have the actions be plausible. I don't think that, you know, I think your characters can be intelligent and still appeal to your male readership. You make them good characters. And then I went on to tell him all the exercises he could do and all the ways he could fix his stuff. Cause you know, I'm a theater major. I'm like 21 years old at this point and I know everything. After I sent that off, you know, I, I wrote like maybe six letters of comment ever. Cause it really wasn't a priority until somebody pissed me off. And so I got an incredible response on this one because about two weeks later, I get a call. How far is Diamond Bar from San Diego? And can you come down to this convention and meet me? So in 1981, I went to the Comic-Con. You can't do this today. I just drove down to the Comic-Con and said, I'm going to go meet Dick Giordano. So so I check in at the convention and I tell them, I'm here to meet Mr. Giordano. He said he's going to put aside a ticket for me. And they kind of looked at me like, yeah, yeah, girly. You know, (laughs) great story. Move along. So back over to the at the time, the was in the hotel and people were staying at the hotel which doesn't happen anymore so all these coincidences all my my stunning naivete you couldn't carry off today in the same way you'd have to come up with a new trick so the house phone Giordano and he's not there and I leave a message for his room and I say okay I'm 5'4 I have uh, fuzzy brown hair a red shirt and a puzzled expression and then I went back over to the convention floor bought myself a ticket went in and you know started scanning the program and thought oh okay uh Len Wein and uh, um, Julie Schwartz are on this panel right now, and they work with Dick Giordano at DC Comics, so they will know what he looks like, and they can point me towards him. So I went up there and introduced myself to them and said, can you help me? Can you point – tell me what Dick Giordano likes like? And they go, sure, he's right behind you. You know, So many portions of my life, by the way, resemble a badly written comic book with all sorts of crazy coincidences involved. But that's it. Okay, moving more quickly, finally – uh, Dick offered me a job. I didn't want to leave before I finished off my degree. So he offered me the Batgirl backup, which I did for all of the the first two detective issues that I did, the backups with Trevor Von Eden. Hey, no, Trevor Von Eden was drawing them. I found that out when I picked up a copy off the newsstand. I was writing for Jose Delbo, and I wrote a story carefully constructed to be only shots where I thought Jose really shined. And I also – this was the before the New Talent Showcase – so Dix at the time said, I want you to take over the feature, but give yourself eight to ten issues to transition from Carrie Burkett's writing to your own. So I want you to write like Carrie Burkett until we kind of, you know, basically so the fanboys didn't die of a heart attack that the girl was writing. Yes. Uh, I, I don't know his full reasoning, but okay. I thought so I wrote like Carrie Burkett. And if you want to do a mathematical analysis of that story, it's pacing and word choice arrangements and all that to echo Carrie Burkett with a little bit of me thrown in. And then I was trying to get my own attitude into the characters and all that. But I started with that backup and then ended up on staff at DC. And then the secret origin of the Batgirl special came about because because Killing Joke mm-hmm. was going to happen. Frank Miller had retconned Barbara Gordon out of existence, but then he'd named Jim Gordon's wife after me, which became awkward given that my <laughs> name is Barbara. 
And so anyway, Batgirl was going to completely go away, but we had the, the, the getting rid of her and killing joke. So uh, Dick had come to me and said, um, you know, we're going to blow her. We're going to blow her spine out, make people care. You know, he said this kind of thing with a laugh on his face. It's not like it was you know designed to be excessively cruel or inhumane. It was more like have the situation. So therefore, let's make sure that the outcome is something people regret. You know, we knew editorially we were losing this character for different reasons. But let's send her out with a a glorious bang. So those stories contain a character that I was going to be writing into. I had written an outline for several issues of the Batgirl backups, all of which didn't happen. One happened in script form and got used to uh, train writers for years. (laughs) Dick sent it out with my phone number attached to the top. So I got all sorts of freaky calls from people like, what's a baton? It's set in a theater and part of it involves a Mm. falling baton, which is the the big pipe that the Mm. lights hang from. So I talked to lots of new young comic artists, none of none of whose names I remember, about you know explaining a baton and backstage in a theater. But so anyway, I was going to write the Batgirl backup for many issues. Dick got promoted to managing editor. Len took over detective and decided to dump Batgirl for Catwoman. And who the hell was I? You know, so I that my my writing career be, began and ended in two eight page backups there. But then when I was hired on at DC, what I was hired on as an it was editor writer that they were I was both going to be on the editorial staff and they were going to be you know training me to write and then I didn't get too many opportunities to do that. But I got those two Batgirl pieces, which was really nice and sort of you know there's there's a special sort of horrible to uh, trying to do your best to bring somebody to life that you know is going to have something horrible happen to them. And as do you know, unfortunately, the the uh, across the board, your the likelihood of you being maimed or killed or somehow crushed is significantly higher if you're a fictional female character at DC Comics than anywhere else. Well, quick question on a killing joke. Did Do you know if it was originally supposed to be in continuity or was it always sort of out of continuity and then when it became a hit, it was brought into the larger Batman mainstream? At the time, it was intended to be con- – I think it may have been intended to be a standalone at one point, but it was considered canon about the time it was being done. But our part, it's part and parcel. All that is tied into the changes from crisis and all sorts, all the wacky stuff that was happening in 1986. Did you prefer writer or editor? Because you're sort of wearing two different hats. Did you prefer one to the other? I am a writer. Editor okay. is a job. And I love both of them. I really love the part I love about editing. I love shaping the story with someone. I love putting teams together. And I'm really kind of good at connecting some of the pieces there. And I love the whole sculpting of a universe and a story and all that. I do not love the internal politics. I um, I do not love the sort of – I came into comics as an outsider. And I took a lot of crap for that because I was supposed to work my way up as a fan and then work my way maybe in as an intern and then get a job. I'm not supposed to walk in for a job that a couple of people felt belonged to somebody else who'd been an intern. And then I also wasn't one of the boys. And so I kind of insisted that the, if you were writing a script for me, I I was terrible at insisting that you make the women characters too. And my feeling is The sexy visual doesn't need to be done away with. The lack of personality needs to be done away with. Because if you look at, like, I always hold up, like, early Adam Hughes. He draws a lineup of extremely sexy female characters. But they're all specific Mm -hmm. individuals. And my problem is not with the sexy. My problem was with the, although I'd like to see a greater range of body styles, including more realistic. My problem was with stupid was with, uh, you know, all the stories I read where I look back, what I saw happening too often 
was just a matter of perspective. The male writers and artists would think from their perspective, they would identify with the lead male. So that meant the women and the other characters were accessories. And I taught a number of writers to step in, you know, strong exception, by the way, being Marv and especially the combination of Marv and George. Um, But I taught a lot of writers to step into, to approach it like a theatrical script, go through and every character you've got on the page, imagine you've been cast in that role. And if they've got one grunt, try to make it somehow specific as possible. The Shakespeare rules of things. If somebody's got one line, it's still one specific character having one line that has a purpose for being there or else you get rid of it. With a lot of people, both both writer and artist, I saw well-meaning people who never meant to shut out women or people of any other minority. It just does. When you look up and you look in the mirror, that's what you draw. When you look up and stare off into your own history, that's what you write from. And if you don't have the perspective, if you don't have the experiencer's perspective to know to jump out of that point of view, then everything is centric to the person you are, the place you are in. An example of this would be when I was leaving DC Comics and moving to Oregon, one of my fellow editors took me aside and said, can I ask you a question? Sure. Why would you want to do that? And I said, why would I want to do what? Why would you want to live in a log cabin? And I said, excuse me? And this born and bred New Yorker went on to describe a scenario where in his eyes, Oregon was nothing but a un, unfinished wilderness of, of you know, log cabins and, and, and you know, lumberjacks. That there's jokes about how New Yorkers don't think there's any civilization west of the Mississippi. And since I spent most of my life west of the Mississippi in three different states there, well, actually one came after, I know that the biggest difference is that when you're reading a comic book as a young kid in California, you keep going, why are all these characters on these old-fashioned buildings with water tanks on the top? Until I got to New York and realized they still existed. To me, that was some kind of weird artifact from the 30s that didn't happen anymore because I lived in, you know, uh, I lived in flat two-story suburbia. Do you feel like we've progressed? Do you feel like looking at comics now and how women and minorities are portrayed that we're doing a better job? There has never, ever, ever been a greater opportunity for everyone in the world to participate in the storytelling form. There's never been a greater range of acceptable art styles there's never been a greater range of writing styles and character and story approach it, this is the land of plenty right now because it's just exploding into different directions now the only trouble people have right now is like me the field's gone so global i'm having a hell of a time getting work because i'm no longer it no longer matters that i'm an expert in this particular script form it's that i don't have 200 million twitter followers to help sell the book So it has its own downside, but I won't give up the fact that these incredible voices have been created and found. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff all over the place. Plus, we're living in the world. Okay, when I grew up, this nice little child of the 60s, wanting a world in which everybody got a chance. You know, the the, uh, the, I'm a granola. We fall in between the the yuppies and the the preppies and the yuppies. So I'm kind of like the 60s without drugs. And I'm the 70s without the, the the part where it went all disco. I always wanted a world where you where everybody gets to play. You have some of everything. And I've been a very strong advocate my whole time for making sure we get a lot of representation of people of different uh, shades, different ideas, different ideologies, different et ceteras, because that's more interesting. than If you read about stories that are just you reading about you, you're going to be bored in a week and go on to like playing video games forever. Okay, I've just disparaged video games, which I'm sure a lot of people are very, very much in love with. But what I mean is the sort of reading opens the mind, playing any kind of a game on a fixed track 
doesn't necessarily have the same mm-hmm. effect. Right now, I mean, the, the beauty, the glory of the internet is nerds can unite. Anybody who's got a particular little fandom or a particular little style they like or a particular little opinion can find a sounding board, can find people to talk to or to listen to. The downside of it is it becomes so isolationist. People sit in their own home and never get out and never do anything having to do with other human beings. And when they do, they're aggressively rude and drive like they're in Grand Theft Auto. So what I want to see is more of what we've got going on. I want to see more things stretching in all directions. Because as far as I'm concerned, if somebody wants an old-fashioned, one-handed comic, they're entitled to it. They get to have it. There's a market for that. There's a reader. And that doesn't mean that I, I don't think everything has to conform to the same rules. I believe in a library that everyone. I do not believe in a library that censors. Mm-hmm. At the same time, a certain amount of discretion is possibly mm-hmm. in place. I don't think there's anything wrong with having a comic book store, shall we say, with zones sort of age appropriate, you know, kid appropriate at the front and, and uh, all those go go beyond here better have their minds open enough to handle everything at the back. But I don't believe in forcing any of it to not happen. I just think that people ought to sometimes have packaging that shows what they are. I mean, I don't want to see X-rated porn dressed up as My Little Pony with that somebody being very, very clear about what's going out there and what the audience is going to get. But do I think that means that anybody's kind of weird version of anything shouldn't exist? Nope, mm-hmm. that's different. It's not mine things that are not my flavor, the things I want to see. I See, I don't believe in banning and I don't believe in shunning. I believe in heralding and talking about the things you like. If there's something you don't like, make it go away by just not talking about it. Not shunning by putting up a label and saying, don't touch this, don't look at this, don't go there. You just make it not exist. Don't follow it. Don't trumpet it. Don't give it PR. Give all that energy to the things that are great. Okay, we just wandered off into six different subjects No, there. but it all comes back to your idea that anyone can potentially be involved in this medium, and I think it's more open than perhaps it was when you were first starting out. So I think it, it all wraps well, up. Well, one of my missions is to bend, to have it have comics be treated as a medium and not just a superhero mm-hmm. genre. I have a lot of work out of comics. When I was working in, I worked at the Dunedin Fine Arts Center, and we built up a curriculum that we just got started on. But the idea was going to be to show people who are artists how the graphic novel format, how the comic book storytelling format could be used by them as a tool. You could have a, you could have all sorts of insane hybrids. You could have an artistic triptych that is essentially three panels. It's still fully painted art and three canvases maybe, but it, there's a storytelling technique or style or approach to it that there is so much more to this thing that we label comic books than is just a, a issue of Superman on the shelf. And there's nothing wrong with an issue of Superman on the shelf. I mean, that's sort of, there's a pure heart to that superhero image that has a power that can't be denied. This is our modern mythology. This is our Greek gods. This is our story that elevates the spirit and perhaps inspires people to take a step beyond what they thought they could do to attempt to bring out the noble or the good in people. And I'm much more of a sunlight person than a darkness person. So there you go. Thank you very much for going into your history. I think the the one detail that always follows you around is that letter that you wrote to Dick Giordano. But mm-hmm. I had never heard of that scary situation that you were involved in. I'm sorry that that happened to you, but I love how you sort of took it. And, and it came. I think it became a beautiful moment because you ran into a place that was safe and then it became comics. So thank you for sharing that. You know, it was only about, let's see, when 
when it crossed into, I was only about 2005, 2006 as I was sitting in my house in Tampa. So two decades later is when I came face to face with realizing how badly that mm. it scared me. Cause I'd been spent all my years going, I'm such a badass, I can't even be kidnapped, you know? And I did a search cause I thought, okay, this guy used a particular technique. I remember noticing at the time that he didn't, you know, I'm looking at him as a director and I'm thinking, wow, he's got his lines down. So he knows what he knows what he's going to be doing. He has that confidence, but he doesn't have it internalized. He doesn't have it so practiced that he still knew to it. And he was just so manic, so excited. He didn't come across as fearful. He came across as just beautifully absurd. And I, and I do remember thinking that's how girls end up as bodies in the canyon. Your fight, your fight or flight response is not set off because the situation is absurd mm-hmm. and not frightening. Yeah. So I did a search and I thought, okay, I'm going to be brave. I'm going to look backwards and I'm going to go start searching through. I mean, because I was raised in the year of ten, but Ted Bundy. I remember the training we were put through in high school. Right? Never be alone. Always travel in fours. Always make sure somebody's hurt. There's somebody to stay with them. Let people know where you are at all times, which meant that my response in college, of course, was to take off for the mountains alone because, because forget yeah. you. No. Nobody can tell me what to do. Uh, but I also know 10 ways to kill you. <laughs> uh, so I, I started doing a search of all the people who have been discovered and found. And you start realizing how many mass murders we've got in America. We have our own. They talk about our homegrown art forms. We certainly got one there. And the creepiest, most horrible part of it after all that search was that no one was in the right place. No one seemed familiar. So does that mean I'm misremembering his visual? Or does that mean somebody knows? So, which is kind of a worse feeling than I was waiting for somebody to look familiar. And when nobody did, that was almost worse. See. Paul Dini uh, recently wrote a graphic novel. I don't know if you've uh, written this, but it's, I can't remember what the exact title is, but it's about his experience after he got mugged and sort of the, the tough time that he had. And do you feel like you would ever be comfortable enough to turn this story into a, a graphic novel like that? I already have turned it into a graphic novel. I've used pieces of it and again. I mean, in advance of talking to you, I went back and reread the background oh, special for the first true. time in yeah. okay. 12 years and realized how personal it is. The slash character specifically? No. Batgirl's response Oh, okay. that girl's okay. response is I'm so afraid to go out there. I'm going to be so prepared because mm. if you had seen for many years what I stocked my purse with, <laughs> it's weird, but it definitely was mining into that feeling of being stalked. And I've used it. Again. And would I do a specific graphic novel about it? No, I don't think it needs to happen. It's 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 okay. I've for most of my career, the frustration for me right now is I can't, there've been many, many companies who like one set it flat out. I want to use you, but your social media metrics aren't high enough. And that's mm. such garbage because I always felt like my writing life, my writing life and my talent were out there. My private life was my business and not yours. Now mm. there's just this expectation that you will mine all of your experiences directly for story. And those are my stories. I don't want to give them all away. I mean, I give away a portion of them, but not, not any of the real stuff. Mm-hmm. So I just mostly think it's funny that, you know, I, I, I do still like the irony of why I'm in comics because I was almost a character in a comic book, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's transition to Barbara Gordon. And I first wanted to ask you, how would you describe her as a character and what did you enjoy most about writing her? Well, I always hated Batgirl because my name is Barbara. My father's name is 
<laughs> that girl came on to the TV show when I was in second grade and I would walk to school and I had two kids who said they were the penguin and the Joker and they would try, they would try to catch me on the way to school. Now, I was a very literal, I'm a very literal adult. I was a very literal little child with a great imagination, but I take things very seriously and I thought I was going to die. So I always hated her because I was mm. running into danger because of her. So when Dick offered me the Batgirl writing assignment, I was like, oh, great. Yeah. Yay. Wah, rah. I went through <laughs> all the existing Batgirl stories at that time. And I, I'm a big believer. I respect continuity because I treat it as a puzzle. I figure all the pieces that have been established in print so far are a story that's precious to someone. So let's find a way to make them all be real. So I went through and I just, I determined through all that, that, you know, I kind of made this huge list. She was, had been a Senator in some of the stories was working for a uh, government agency at the time, figured out that she had to be 26 years old and went through the reasoning for it. You know, I kind of, part of it was the process of, Oh damn, I've got to find a way to like Barbara Gordon. But rather than playing her as the shy librarian, crime fighter, I split her differently and said, sort of put her into the category of someone who fell into almost a hero worship relationship with Batman, but determined me. I have lots of notes that I sent off to Dick and the biggest note. Okay. This means nothing now, but in 1981, this would have been a big deal. I said, here's the deal. The costume is leather. So Batgirl is her sensual identity on a perpetual chase to be the partner of Batman. So on that sense, on some level, Robin is a bit of a rival because Batman is the mysterious, beautiful stranger who appears at night. He's the unattainable male adult. So this was her way. This is the girl who would, in modern times, would probably have the uh, uh, Fifty Shades Grey basement or something like that. That this that this is this is the sensual, sexual identity of the character, which is separate from the intellectual, puzzle-solving, driven daytime version. So she was kind of like one of those 80s overachievers with a, a secret life that was a thrill to her. So it was a thrill to be Batgirl. So I had the balance of the thrill to be Batgirl versus the fear of going out and becoming that vulnerable. Because she is thrown into a situation, her initial story is that she's not intending to be a crime fighter. She's intending to be a character in costume and ends up being the crime fighter. But I played that as her secret desire all along, that that's truly where where she'd want it to be but there's an analytical approach to it plus you know people toss away things toss aside things like oh i have a photographic memory and i tried to put that to work tried to have that be something mm. used and i played it up by saying you know i never forget a face and all that and i thought wow what would it be to walk through a city like gotham and have like all a beautiful mind where the images are trailing in front of you to have your do an automatic catalog of everyone in the city because you've seen them all at least once and if you take any information have her obsessively learning so that she can't be captured because she always knows the way out. She nobody can hide in the city because she knows what building you're in and who owns it. That I was sort of oracling her making her very strongly an information based character. Because I kind of wanted to show the the strong side of people dismiss the idea of librarians. And when you get to know actual librarians, you find out A, they're usually smarter than the average bear by a huge amount. But they are information ferrets. If you mm-hmm. bring them a question, they want to know the answer and find it for you. And they have all sorts of ways to put together. All of them are information obsessive on different levels, and they want to put all those pieces together. And I wanted that to be part of her. Now, if I were approaching her today, there would be a bunch of different things I'd do. 
But the, but the only thing based on my interpretation of her that ever struck me as false over the years was the romance with Robin. Although I, I mm. like it, especially during the Birds of Prey era, she's Oracle. I like it. But it was like, oh, my God, in my head, she's like screwing her brother. <laughs> so, mm. so it was always uh, it was always why would you have boy when you can have man? Why settle for that? It didn't strike me as being consistent with the psychology as I'd helped build it up. Not that that really makes any difference to anybody but me. So. I'm interested in this idea because I'm actually not a supporter of a, a Bruce and Barbara relationship. So I kind of want to hear you go into oh, oh, why no. you think. I never ever thought there would be or should be a Bruce-Barbara relationship. Okay. I always felt like Batman was the lure that kept Bar- the, the idea of Batman. The fancy idea okay. of Batman is what kept her in the game. Mm-hmm. That, but the reality would never hold up. Okay. Once she found out he was Bruce Wayne, you just kind of have that sleazy factor. Oh, God, how many diseases does he have now? (laughs) Yeah, it's always, I think, liking the person, the mask (laughs) rather than the actual person under the mask. Yeah. Uh, How difficult was it writing for an eight to ten page comic story? Did you find that a crutch at all and you would have preferred doing a a full 22 page or was that an easy format to do? You know, formats to me always come down to... I, I mean, the, the biggest frustration of that one and only first story there is finding out after the fact that Trevor was going to be drawing it because I like to write for the artist. Mm-hmm. And I wrote that story for Jose Delbo, who'd been doing the backups. And I would have approached it completely different knowing Trevor's graphic style, you know, because uh, Thriller had come out and I thought that the work in that was just fantastic. And again, I come out of theater. So I come out of where the, the stylistic uh, approach of the work is part of the work. So to me, it is so important to know who's going to be drawing a script. And when I don't know, I put in style cues. I try to put in a lot of, embed a lot of information so that you get a sense of what should feel like where it should be taking place. But you can't do that as well as you can when you know what kind of uh, strength each artist has. To me, size, (laughs) size doesn't matter, how should we say this, that it is more fun to be able I love doing a series because I love to be able to to braid in little bits and have them pay off later. I love to have a little the room for little side scenes and to explore backup characters. But all of it is if you decide something's going to be difficult, it's going to be difficult. If you say, "Hey, I have eight pages, what can I fill them with?" It's pretty much the same thing as, "Hey, I have twenty to twenty-four pages, what am I going to fill them with?" Because the twenty-page stories are usually nothing more than four to five-page units strung together in an interesting pattern. In each case, like in the with the those eight-page stories, the expectation was there would be many of them, and so that you could start layering in little bits that would show up. Do try to, no, I'm not sure that I think that it was necessarily all that successful in the first one. You really have to try to distill. I mean, in eight pages, you don't have, you can't take the space. You can, if you've got a bigger issue and want to kind of wander for three or four pages. Mm-hmm. But it's a case of you beautifully fill whatever kind of space you have and you use the parameters that you're given and fill them as nicely as you can with what you've got to bring to it. And at no point should an eight page story be less respected than a 20 page story. Absolutely. So let's look at your first story. It was Detective Comics 518 and 519. Looking back at it, what are your thoughts now? Dear God, what a f***ing mess. Your first <laughs> In terms of layout. Oh, no. In that case, I did the script. It went off to the artist blind. I didn't do the balloon placement because I certainly would have done a better job mm-hmm. you know, on the page with it. So I'm just seeing it after the fact going, oh, it's just all, to me, it's just all wrong. Because 
Trevor's hobbled. His strengths are kind of this, this interesting graphic approach that acquires a certain amount of space. Not, I wrote it for somebody who works on more of a classic six-page grid, six-panel grid. Mm. So I, I think it's, it's – I can see – I know the things I put in there that are stylistically Carrie Burkett. And I know the things that I put in there were a little bit more me. And I also, mm-hmm. because it was my first story, I read it sometimes years ago that so much of it is I hear my voice in my head on those lines. So I can't get it effectively. Mm-hmm. But I, I, anything, anything you do, you're done. You go back and all you can see are the places where you could have done it better. Well, I want to talk about Velvet Tiger, who is the main antagonist here. How did you come up with this particular character idea? And also, were you involved in the costume design? I was not, not – I never saw any of the art. I did not see anything having to do with okay. the costume design. And I can't remember at this point what I described. But I know that when I came up with Velvet Tiger – remember how I was talking about Batgirl is in leather? So that yes. part of being out on Gotham, the sensual quality of wearing a leather suit out in public long before rock stars wore leather pants and everybody else did this. So it would be the equivalent of wearing, you know, a, a mesh, uh, a mesh latex bikini now or something like that, that there is a sensuality to the outfit. Well, as a customer, which I was at Cal Poly at the time, I went for another textural approach. I mean, the velvet came from the velvet and leather thing where it started as the texture of the material. I wanted this very sensuous woman who was completely in control of her power. To her, it was nothing to go out, you know, whatever kind of cat suit, whatever. And I think I probably envisioned something more superhero-like, but the velvet in the name was specifically to counter the leather with Barbara Gordon. That's another thing that frustrates me. Poor little Grant looks like he's her father. (laughs) (laughs) And they're supposed to be sort of – they were supposed to be like, you know, okay, we're talking early 80s here. So we're talking early Microsoft, early Apple and all that. They were supposed to be sort of like computer founders. And instead, it's like this old guy in a suit. Yeah, speaking of her brother, you wrote these characters again in Hawk and Dove uh, in 1991, 22 through 24. Do you feel like these two characters are ones that their history will always be intertwined? And so if they would reappear again, that they should appear together yes. again? Because anytime you have a relationship of, tw- of twins, you have a kinship there that can't be replicated by any other uh, relationship that you have. You can involve new ones, but you've got that bonded at the core feeling. And again, you have these sort of, there's that big brother, little sister dynamic to them where big brother's always going to feel a step more responsible, even if he's crazier <laughs> and, and little mm-hmm. sister then got a real superpower and is much more of a, a, a badass there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What went into your, I don't know if you remember the post-crisis Velvet Tiger. She does, yeah, she has powers, and she's actually younger, though appears older because of her, like, time mm-hmm. portals. Would you remember what went into your decision to change the character from her pre-crisis appearance? Yeah, she was too wimpy for Hawk and Dove without some kind of power. <laughs> okay. <laughs> sounds Yeah, sounds good. There was one page in your story, it's actually the last page that I've sort of stared at and and kind of, now that I'm talking with you, perhaps you can reveal to me all the meaning. But Barbara is angrily venting to her father, if you recall this, uh, and she she says, quote, about Velvet Tiger, she's manipulative and arrogant, doesn't respect anything but her own whims. She was going to kill her own brother. She's the kind of woman who makes me ashamed to be one. And then Jim interrupts her and asks, she got away? And then there's a panel of Barbara kind of stunned face and then she's smiling and laughing and saying i love you dad what is going on it's the father-daughter dynamic what does barbara really hate about the velvet tiger she got away Mm -hmm. it's like 
you know, in other words, I hate her because she's this and she's that and she's this and that and she's this. And the answer is she got away. <laughs> okay. So that's just the pricking that parents do when you're like all head up about something and what you're really upset about is it's your own failing in the situation. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you for clearing that up for me. Final question about this. Do you know at all what happened to the storyline regarding Barbara's time at the Humanities Research and Development Center? Because all of a sudden, it sort of it, that storyline stops, and then she finds herself back at the library. Do you know anything about that? No. I, I probably did okay. one time, but I'm drawing a complete blank right now. I think that happened prior to my time. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, Secret Origins 20. So you were given a big test, and you got to retell the origin. So what went into what Well, went into Frank Miller had decided there were no Bat characters except Batman. So everybody who was a Bat hyphen had okay. to be taken away. So Batgirl was going away. Mm-hmm. And he had also decided that uh, James Gordon uh, – he also decided that Commissioner Gordon – you know, because this was – okay, in 1986 when they redid Crisis and John was doing Superman and Frank was doing Batman and all that – all the other versions were supposed to go away forever. So we had that transition happening where they're all supposed to just go away and disappear forever. Then for, I guess, marketing reasons, whatever, it's like, oh, can't get rid of Batgirl. Oh, we can't get rid of this. So Batgirl was going to go away entirely. James Gordon was going to have a son, and that's the only child. And then they had to wedge them. we had to wedge them back in. <laughs> so we Gordon in by making her her own uh, cousin. By making her the child of parents who were then gone and adopted by James Gordon. So then the, uh, we had two Barbara Gordons on purpose then because one was the stepmother and then she's the younger right. brother, etc. So it was a, uh, a god-awful mess of retconning messed up pieces and keeping what had to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I threw in Marcy, her best friend who had never happened before, to have a foil character to play off of in the future. She was okay. supposed to appear in those backup stories. And her function... Stories was going to be to be the one person who had the responsibility of knowing it, it, the foil character that Barbara could talk to, who's somebody who understood who she was under the mask, but was a civilian and and frankly didn't really care. And then I kind of upped the ante in the Batgirl story and made her somebody who knew and did care quite a bit and had a strong opinion about it because it's playing off the different levels of French uh, female friendship there and yeah, against uh, Slash and Cormorant's wife. Um, Mm -hmm. but she appears as part of the background in the secret origin for the same reason. It's partly so that Barbara Gordon can say some of these things out loud to the audience and not just be talking to herself. You know, I remember when I was a kid and I made up these characters, ha 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 ha. But I wanted that sense of play. Batgirl came out of a sense of play, play acting, putting on a costume, going out. So I wanted there to be a play origin for that, that she was a very driven, studious, serious little child who had in her head all these made up characters all the superhero girls that they could be. So Marcy existed as a device to reveal that. What went into adding this other layer to Barbara's family? Because suddenly it's it's more tragic because her, her mother was killed and then her father starts drinking and he dies as well. Was the intent to make it a little more, like, I, you know, tragic? It, it was more that we just had to get her into James Gordon's house without being his daughter. <laughs> that, okay. That, but that I wanted a sense of that she came – to Commissioner Gordon's house, a little wounded, a little defensive, and ready to not trust in secrets. Mm. Do you prefer the relationship between Barbara and Jim as niece and uncle, as as you started, or nope, daughter, daughter and, father? and father? Okay, why is that? Well, because that's a it's one of your strongest bonds. But there's mm-hmm. there's a one step removed to being the niece that takes away the power 
responsibility of, you know, what is this basically? Dad says to daughter, no, you can't go out. No, you can't go out with that boy. And daughter says, I'm going to sneak out the back window. That's a, a, a very <laughs> cliche yet human situation that happens all the time. And it's got a particular power to it because you're supposed to learn from and obey your parents. And at the same time, you're also going to defy them and grow up and break from them and move away. Mm-hmm. So it's a stronger bond. It's a more broken character when we take her from the other messed up family and put her into Jim Gordon's house and have her. I needed a reason why she would think of him as her dad. And that would be because she'd want to cling to someone who was strong and consistent after growing up in a world where things were not strong and consistent. Mm-hmm. I would rather have it be the clean father-daughter relationship. I don't even know what they're doing right now. Are they, what, is, what is it now? It's father-daughter. It's father-daughter again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. I th- it's it's in the later '90s that it goes back and it's revealed again that actually they're father and daughter. <laughs> and then now with this new continuity, it's it's back to the clean cut father and daughter, which I prefer, anyways. But yeah, okay. Well, Batgirl special number one. You talked a little bit about this already. What DC editorial I think was telling you. So would you see this as just like it was a transition to the end? It was uh, in between, you know, Batgirl and now Killing Joke, and it was just like a let's tie it off and, and finish her run. Was that really the intent? But so many of the Batgirl stories are Batgirl up against guys, and part of me yeah. wanted to show that well, you know, girls can do bad things too. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. bad choices are not necessarily simply a masculine thing. Mm-hmm. I can't. There was also there was some case out at the time. I think there'd been a whole lot of talk, like about the um, uh, burning bed case. The idea of does the battered wife have? There is a lot of stuff in the news about does the battered wife have a right to respond with lethal force? Like, mm. are these things good or bad? And so I sort of had. I wanted to balance off, like I said, those two friendships to have. Bring an end to Batgirl's career so Barbara Gordon would exist within the DC universe by choice, not being Batgirl. Since we had the weird wedgie situation of this character that the Bat office didn't want, they found out they had to have. So put her there where she was around. Now, what it's also coupled with, by the way, here's what didn't happen. Before Oracle, there was the new Batgirl by a different name that I might use for something else, so I'm not telling it to you. Okay. <laughs> where there's a there's a proposal in from me. Initially, I did a version with myself and Dan Mishkin. Then there was one that was just me that was approved that was going to happen. And then the creation of Oracle quashed it. Mm. But originally, I said, all right, we've got a universe where the Teen Titans have Prometheum. We've got this self-healing metal. Barbara Gordon slash Batgirl knows the Teen Titans, knows of Star Labs, has a photographic memory. So I had given her – oh, it's – I talked about the armored idea before. What I wanted to do was take Batgirl with a broken back, put her in Promethean-based armor, so self-healing metal in the armor, so it was sort of invincible. Have her photographic memory program in all her moves. So she was essentially wearing an exoskeleton that would move for her in the ways she could and would move. Mm -hmm. And then send her out to fight crime basically in a tank. So it would really up her as a superhero. Keep Barbara Gordon in the DC Universe but make her this serious badass going out there in a set of armor whose vulnerability is if it if somebody manages to harm it she's a paraplegic inside so there, there's there's still that vulnerability even though you're walking around in a damn tank like cyborg and mm-hmm. everybody liked this it went through it got approved it had its own you know series of, of what would be going on in it and then as i was moving cross country i got the call that it ceased to exist so my Initial response to Oregon, uh, Oregon. My initial response to to Oracle was extremely negative because it cost me a series. 
looking back now, has your opinion changed at all on Oracle? The character was so well executed, and there are so many good, strong stories with it that now I miss there not being an Oracle, even though I like the whole Batgirl of Burnside thing. I'd like for there to be both somehow, in a way. But it was at the time, it was a terrible disappointment because I was trying to work my way up to a series again. And it's one of, I don't want to tell you how many times over the last couple of decades I've gotten to the point where I've been the first runner up on a series. I, I, but it was one that was kind of a disappointment because I wanted to see her come back in that way. But kind of, no, I, you know, I'm pretty content with what they've done and what they've got now. The other thing we haven't talked about have you in your podcast, have you uh, touched on the Else Girls book? Else Girls? No. And there's, there was a one-shot. Okay. Tom Simmons did the art. I did the script. Elseworlds Finest, Supergirl oh, and Batgirl. Oh, yes. I have not touched on it, but I have it. So it's like in the – yeah. That's Batgirl taken to another okay, extreme. Yeah. And that in that story, kind of a running – okay, the reason that story came about is Matt and Tom like to draw mm-hmm. girls. So they have all these sketchbook drawings full of girl versions of characters and all that. And so we ended up taking – it to extremes so in that particular story none of the dominant male paradigms happened so batgirl has batman's origin supergirl well superman never happened on this world and all of it's like abensur is still green lantern uh we have big barda but not mr miracle etc like that and as i said mostly it came about because these guys wanted to draw girls (laughs) but it just became this interesting thought experiment what would the dynamic be and how would the characters work if they were all one step different and kind of weirdly much we do have the strange amalgam of bane and joker which is kind of uh, over the top but that's another take on the batgirl character that kind of shows the potential of what she might have been like if she'd been back barbara gordon in a tank yeah why focus on the Cormorant, uh, this particular villain in Batgirl's history? Yeah, I just wanted to, well, A, because I think he's probably available. B, because he'd appeared in one of her early stories, and so I want to play off that psychologically as a, a failure, as a, a scary thing. Mm-hmm. C, because I could just have the mean guy running around hitting girls. And because I could kill him. <laughs> Since he, Yeah, so he's more of a disposable villain, potentially. And then you had Slash, so you had another antagonist. But this one fights four women uh, who are, or were, I guess, victims of men. So did that at all come from your experience? You said Batgirl was more from your experience. No, no, because Slash is just, Slash is the anti-Batgirl. She's going on the streets to cause mayhem rather than Mm -hmm. cause anything else. But she's also a playoff Cormorant. Cormorant's this hired killer that goes around and takes out people, you know, for whatever reason. This is somebody who's doing it for supposedly a a humanitarian reason. But I don't particularly believe in going out and killing people you don't like. I do believe in bringing them up. But again, it was was an impulse taken to a Batgirl is an impulse taken to extremes. I want to go out and fight crime, so I will go do it in a silly suit with all these toys. Uh, Slash is a you know really cheap and easy name there, uh, but is another impulse taken to extremes that 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 revenge slash protectionism. Batgirl has taken her trauma and turned it into making her a force for good. Slash took her trauma and turned it into a uh, being an avenging angel supposedly, but she's going around killing people. Like I said, I don't I don't agree. But I tried to sort of humanize for this and and then of course there's there's uh Cormorant's wife right. who i don't think ever actually got a name i don't think so either yeah so she was just sort of one of those people that was known by her husband mm-hmm. who was slash did you have any thought as to who was under the mask i'm sure at the time okay. i did 
have any idea okay well you know there could be a conspiracy theory that marcy was somehow affiliated with slash because she sort of slips into barbara's life and then you know it almost seems like marcy wants to get rid of that girl no No? okay my intention that was i I wanted to get rid of that girl part of her just got put in to give some impetus for conversation in the special but she was always just going to be barbara's best friend what I wanted her to be is a certain, like we do with some of the characters in Hawk and Duff. You have these people in their superhero environment, but when they step out of it, here's the people you hang out at Starbucks with who don't know anything about that part of your life and really don't give a okay. professional versus okay. personal. And I just wanted to give her a foil character and she's kind of based on people I knew in the costume department at Cal Poly. Okay. So no intention for Marcy picking up the cowl? No. Did you have any further plans for Slash? If you had more time to write? By the way, my intention for Marcy is I'd set up that she's a costumer. She was going to help Barbara Gordon construct oh, the tank. Oh, okay. So she would have continued on in your storyline with, okay. Yeah. Very cool. Any further plans for Slash had you continued writing? No. No, she was just kind of a, a thing for that story. Okay. Just wrapping up, we've sort of danced around it a little bit, but do you have any opinions on the Killing Joke story itself? Oh, I hated it at the time. Okay. Uh, and I, I still yeah. hate it because to me, I understood, I worked with Alan. I understand his impulses. I know where that kind of story mm-hmm. came from, etc. I found it very powerful. I found it astonishingly well drawn. And I hate it because it sort of sums up all the misogyny that took place at mm-hmm. the time where women were disposable creatures to show up to be victims or to be targets or to be reasons for the vengeance of men and not fully realized human characters mm-hmm. in their own right. So I have disliked it long. It was fashionable. Okay. <laughs> hey, I, I despise it as well. So we're but on that the same doesn't page. Mean I still respect mm-hmm. it. It is an extremely good study. I just hate it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So my final question is, what do you think about, if you've been reading it, you did mention the Burnside run. What do you think about how Barbara has progressed since you have written her? Well, it's just kind of been all over the map. Okay. On a perfect scale of things, I prefer Oracle Barbara to Burnside Barbara because Burnside Barbara is part of a phase that's happening right now where men characters are men and women characters are cute. And I really love that. I love the visuals. I love the accessibility for girls. And I'm frustrated because of the lack of women characters, grown up adult women characters, because she is a little bit there is a little bit of that infantilization to her. She's still great. It's just that, oh my God, we had Oracle who basically helped run the world. And now we have Batgirl who kind of goes, yeah, when I was that, you know, I don't dislike it, but I prefer the existence of the other since she evolved into that. Cause that's, what's really lacking right now is there's, you know, everybody trots out Wonder Woman who is, Wonder Woman is such a mishmash. And I keep saying the, the essence I keep saying, I keep saying, I hate that phrase. To me, the spirit of what, how I made my peace with Wonder Woman is A, she's God. B, she is the embodiment of feminine disobedience. She's the suffragettes. She's every woman who ever listened to the words, you can said, oh, yes, I can. And when you take that as a power and as an impulse, that makes her very, very powerful. But she's not – what still seems to be missing – I mean, A, I think DC is missing sort of a certain not, – not just DC. In general, there's there's – Oh, no, this is not right because I can come up with examples. I mean, Captain Marvel is a wonderful step forward because you have this powerful, specific character of great strength and ability with her own demons and all that. But she's an adult human female. And so often these adults are either they're just you don't feel like they can make too many decisions on their own. 
And now I can probably, the minute I hang up with you, come up with a dozen examples that prove I'm wrong. But as I said, I look at the difference between Oracle Barbara Gordon and Batgirl Barbara Gordon, and I feel a little sad about Batgirl Barbara Gordon because it feels like a step backwards in terms of iconic Mm -hmm. quality. Would I give her up? Mm -hmm. No. She's awesome. But I'm looking for that next extremely powerful female who steps up being both female and powerful. That was a really stupid phrase there. I want to see the strong, vivid female characters getting shot or beaten or have their powers taken away or or be sort of uh, written out of the story. Like I said, we will hang up and I will think of all the reasons why I'm wrong in that perception. So, Well, if you want to, you can always email. But um, no, I, I, I trust in you. I did forget to ask you, when Barbara was Oracle, she had this little... Batgirl doll on her desk and that was one of the first things you saw before you knew that Barbara was Oracle. Is that do you believe or do you know that is that the same doll that she uh, made with Marcy? Yeah, I think it's Greg Lamb put that in there. Uh, Chuck Chuck told me he didn't write it in and I think it was Greg who drew it in based off of that story. Very cool. Well, Barbara, can you tell people, listeners, uh, how we can support you? in, in uh, anything that you're doing now or if you need more Twitter followers we can always do that I guess I, I need more Twitter I, I, I just I can't tell you how much I hate the whole personal publicity thing I want to be left alone in my cave to, to create things and put them out there but I'm not getting too many opportunities to create things for other people in part because I'm not out there so yes be a Twitter follower but also mention to comic book companies that you would like to see you working for them mention to your local convention that you would like me to come there because I get really shy about asking <laughs> and I get really uh, out of my, my enthusiasm after you keep knocking on doors and it feels like they're, they're, they're no, somebody standing behind them holding them closed. So, so like, you know, talk me up. Absolutely. And if you like my stuff, tell Absolutely. other people you like my stuff, get them to read it, pick up stuff for me in person and all that good stuff. And whatever it is you find out there that's good, tell people about the good stuff. Put all your energy into promoting the good stuff and the good people. Don't put your energy into down-talking whatever's bad because that gives it mm. more power. Well said. Well said. Well, it has, it's been an honor, a pleasure. I've learned so much from this conversation. I really appreciate your <laughs> I really have. I, I really appreciate your time. It's great to go back and learn more about Barbara Gordon from someone who has written her. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. (sighs) I love a happy ending, don't you? And thank you because my friends and I always debate, is it Kiesel or is it Kessel? And I've always said Kiesel, so. Well, by most rules of American English, it needs two S's to be Kessel to have the, the uh, short version of the vowel. That's very true. Single means long version of the vowel. Absolutely. Because I'm old enough to be taught that kind of thing. 